Okay, men, now we're ready for chapter 14, Born Again Marriage, and chapter 15, What's the Question? So here we go. Chapter 14, Born Again Marriage. How did you happen to marry your wife? I asked a man not long ago. Well, she was the sister of a friend of someone I went on a blind date with one time, he shrugged. Obviously his destiny. Why did you marry your wife? I asked another. I was following a military parade down the street, and someone grabbed me and kissed me, and, I, and later I married her. A patriot, patriotic partnership, if nothing else. Why did you marry? I queried a young lady. I couldn't wait to get away from home, she replied directly. My parents were unbearable. I married the first man I dated. I wonder if he knew that, or I wondered if he knew that. The list of reasons is long, varied, and often sad. One man represented thousands of others when he told me at a men's retreat that he and his wife had engaged in premarital sex, she had become pregnant, and both sets of parents, plus their own consciousness, caused the marriage. I've watched couples agonize for hours in counseling sessions before they can confront and confess the truth about their motives for marriage. As it often turns out, the marriage commitment is deeply flawed because of something in the past. Either the husband or wife do not really believe that their partner was God's perfect choice for them, or they harbor a grudge for some wrong their partner did harbor a grudge for some wrong their partner did them long ago. So the foundation of the marriage is not a solid rock, but rather a quagmire of hurts, misunderstandings, suspicions, resist, resentment, and guilt. Marriage can be the closest thing to heaven or hell that many will find on this earth. Tim and Alice came to me for counseling. They were suffering in their marriage, even though he was a minister. Because of that, he felt ashamed to disclose anything about himself or have his wife say anything about him. Her pain in mind and spirit was obvious. His discomfort at being there was also obvious. He had come from a macho man family where the man ruled everything. His father and brothers were uncouth and crude. Much of their conduct was licentious and profane. However, Tim had come under the influence of the word of God and to the revelation of soul that Jesus Christ was his personal savior. He repented of his sins, believed on the Lord, and became a new person when the Spirit of God came into his life in saving power. Because of the great grace God had shown him, the joy of knowing his sins were forgiven, and the desire to share the good news with as many as others as possible, he enrolled in a Bible college. Alice, however, was a typical preacher's kid. Reared on the front pew, she had never known anything but a Christian life and culture. She, like Tim, wanted to share her love for Jesus with the whole world and, as expected, enrolled in Bible college to equip herself for that mission. They met in college. They dated for a year, and the day finally came when she accepted his proposal. They announced their engagement. Three weeks before the wedding date, they were together in an isolated area. Embracing her, Tim became more passionate than she was comfortable with, but she could not seem to stop his advances. He pressed the issue according to the old standards of a home that did not have a biblical basis for right and wrong. His rationale, they would be married in three weeks anyway, why wait? 
She knew better, but not wanting to displease him, she acquiesced. They had sex in the back room of an old building. Six years later, they were in my office. Their lives, while publicly affectionate, were privately volatile. Harsh words, bitter accusations, even physical violence resulted from unresolved issues, forgiven deeds, unforgiven deeds, and unfulfilled love. He complained of her latent hostility. She criticized his lack of manhood toward her. Through the years of guiding them from thought to thought and feeling to feeling, we struck bedrock. Finally, after six years of marriage, she brought herself to say what had been represented, what had been repressed all those years. She resented Tom for not allowing her to be a virgin when they married. Face to face with the issue, Tom looked at her with a mixture of amazement and anger. Do you mean to tell me that you were blaming me for all the problems we have? Blaming me because of the one thing I didn't even know it meant that much to you, he exploded. He exploded. I cut into the conversation. Sir, that's exactly where it belongs, on you. Unless you accept your responsibility for your wife's sense of loss and shame, unless you ask forgiveness for that very thing, you'll never have a right relationship with her. He stormed out, livid. But as he thought it through at home, he, became, he began to see how important it was to her that he had robbed her of what she considered her most priceless gift to him. The sordid act in the back room was more like rape to her than the highest act of physical love between a man and a woman. Eventually, the time came when he could confess that it was his lust, not his love, that caused the problem. It was his fault, his sin, and he repented of it asking forgiveness of his wife and making restitution to her. See, she genuinely forgave him. Her hostility was gone. Their lives changed dramatically. It's always, it always amuses me when I see these old late-night movies where boy chases girl, then girl chases boy, and finally they get their misunderstandings cleared up and pledge their troth, and, and pledge their troth with a kiss standing at the altar. As they stand there embracing at the onset of their marriage, just before the credits roll, the words become imposed on the screen. The end. Anybody knows that it's only the beginning and not the end. There is a life principle based on scripture that says it is harder to maintain than it is to obtain. Jesus not only gives us life principles, but the enabling power to live according to those principles. Jesus Christ is not just the Savior of the soul, but the Savior of our total life. Because ministers often talk about people as souls, or because the translation of Scripture refers to men as souls, it has not been uncommon for men to think that Jesus is only the Savior of the soul. Jesus is the, the Savior, your Savior. Jesus is the Savior of your soul, your marriage, your emotions, your mind, your job, your education, your children. You need Jesus for every area of your life. You need Jesus for the totality of your life. Betty grew up in a Christian home. Bill became a born-again believer in a believing Bible church when he was 13. The two of them met at youth meetings, and they were married when he was 18 and she was 16. Bill became a very successful businessman over the years. Betty developed into an extremely popular, vivacious young woman, an active wife, and mother of two.
They were the model family involved in the affairs of business, community, and church. They were looked upon as they were looked upon as exemplary leaders and pointed to as a pattern for other young couples. Fifteen years into the marriage, tension was running high. Behind closed doors, Bill and Betty were locked into a cold war. They wanted a change, needed a change, but couldn't find it. During that time, I was teaching a leadership training course on the characteristics of Christlikeness. My thesis then and now is that true manhood is Christlikeness. These words imprinted themselves upon Bill's mind, and he meditated on them. Inevitably, another crisis occurred at home. Betty fiercely accused her husband, telling him what she thought he was really like. After a long, heated exchange, Bill burst out of the house and headed for the car. Once inside the car, with the door slammed shut, he put his head down on the steering wheel and clenched his fist. He had been growing into this for the last couple of years. He was almost nauseous from the fighting, bickering, barbs, and fiery exchanges. He knew it was wrong. He needed help. Pounding his fist on the steering wheel, he began to shout out loud, God, you've got to do something. I can't go on with this any longer. I've got to have a change. He rarely ever shed a tear, but now Bill began to cry compulsively. His sobs turned to sighs of helplessness. Jesus, you're my Savior. Help me, he sighed. Minutes passed. Slowly he composed himself, started the car, and drove away. As the streets passed by, God began to work in Bill, and he recalled those characteristics of Christ-likeness I had shared. He turned each one over in his mind as if expecting fresh fruit. Suddenly, he began to see that the remarks of Christ-likeness were missing in his marriage. He and Betty both, as individuals, knew those qualities in their lives. People even remarked on them, but they were not being produced in their marriage. With a start, something occurred to him. He and Betty had both been born again, but their marriage needed the same experience. Personally, apart, there were evidences Christ-likeness. Together, in marriage, it was different. He realized they needed Jesus Christ to give their marriage the same qualities they had prayed for as individuals. Their marriage needed to be born again. Quickly, he turned the car around and raced home. I need to talk to you he said to Betty as he gently took her elbow and guided her upstairs. Do you remember when Jesus came into your life? Of course she did. Do you remember what Jesus began doing in your life when you received him as your Savior? She nodded. It was wonderful. In the bedroom, they sat on the edge of the bed. When we married, he said intently, we had a wedding ceremony, but that was it. We've never had family devotions. We've never really prayed together at home, only at church. We've never shared the word together. Our boys have never seen us talk to God except over the meals. She was weeping softly by now because of the tenderness in his voice and the truth she could feel in his words. Do you know what our marriage needs? Bill asked her warmly and lovingly. Our marriage needs to be born again. As a mountain spring suddenly uncovered, gushing freshly sparkling water, so they began to talk to each other, sharing their most intimate feelings and thoughts. Bill had opened himself up to her for the first time in a decade and a half, exposing his thoughts, pouring out his heart, 
Asking her forgiveness for his many wrongs, Betty shared with him her longings, desires, and hurts. Together they climbed over the walls of defensiveness they had built to protect themselves from vulnerability. They gave and received forgiveness. It was in the early hours of the morning that they knelt by the bedside upon which they had sat and laying so long of talking. It was early in the it was in the early hours of the morning that they knelt by the bedside upon which they had sat and lain so long talking. There they called on Jesus to change their marriage. Together they asked God to make their marriage new. It was a new kind of reality in their marriage. It became a new kind of life. The next night, Bill and Betty walked the ramp of Angel Stadium in Anaheim, California, heading for their seats to enjoy the ball game. They were like lovers who had just discovered each other. It was the awe of first love. He stopped and turned to speak to her. Do you know I think this is the greatest day of my life, he laughed. I feel great. I feel absolutely free. She kissed him and they continued their climb. The end had come and gone. This was a brand new marriage. The ultimate happy ending became the ultimate blessed living. Jesus was maximizing Bill's manhood. Wow, that's a good chapter. Okay, time for chapter 15. What's the question? Hiding a yawn, I listened to the couple differ in their perspectives of each other. My office was windowless and seemed airless as well. It was stuffy, and they seemed the same way. I like people. I like to help them. But I was weary. The day had been one of those that had taken a great deal of time in counseling. I believe in counseling. I believe there is a bona fide ministry of counseling. But I'm also convinced that the major reason for too much counseling in Christian lives today is that there is so little praying. When people spend time in the Word of God, meditating in it, praying over it, confessing it, the Word will become their counselor. Suddenly, the woman sitting across from me jarred me fully awake with her statement. All I want him to do is be a man, just a man. I sat up straight and looked at her, then at him. It was a fair desire on her part. Her husband had exercised little leadership in the home. Because of that, his sons had lost all respect for him. The eldest was in the habit of mocking his father impudently. The other children were still under the mother's control, but only precariously. They constantly teased her with their escapades. The woman was working to subsidize the income of the house because her husband would not look for a better paying position. He easily could have had one, he easily could have had one if he so desired, because she was both disciplinarian and comforter for each of the children, as well as the co-breadwinner, she was wearied with their responsibilities. Neither was there in, neither was there any spontaneity in their life, maritally, recreationally, or sexually. She wanted spice. He gave grits. She wanted something romantic and stimulating. He offered repetition and boredom. Now she had made her case. She had declared her desires. All I want him to do is be a man. Just be a man. I looked squarely at him. You heard her. I said, she wants a man. Can you give her one? She wants you. He looked at me for a moment or two, eyeball to eyeball, then looked away. He gazed up at the ceiling for a long, long time. 
The silence was like soil, growing awkwardness, flowering into tension. The silence became so loud it was almost deafening, but I remembered to let him speak first. It was up to him to answer. He had never been forced to decide before. His parents had always answered for him. His wife had learned over the years to do it for him as well. She was always compensating for him both in public and in private, letting him hide behind her answers. But now, after two decades of schooling, marriage, children, and work, this man was going to have to answer for himself. His parents couldn't. She wouldn't. There are two great questions every man must face, not only face, but, but answer. The first and most important in all of life is, what do you think about Christ? The second is, will you be a man? It was late. The office was stuffy, but the urge to doze was gone, replaced by the knife-head sharpness in the room. He was a man on the brink. His answer required manhood. Honesty, truthfulness, faith, humility, courage, love, grace. All the characteristics of manhood were now being called forth from the depths of his character. Here in the presence of his wife, his God, and his minister, he had to face the question, Will you be a man? His eyes swung down reluctantly from the ceiling and focused slowly on his wife's face. <clears throat> they sat not just eye to eye and face to face, but soul to soul. He was obviously straining with the answer. The words were only a faint whisper when they finally came, but it was like thunder in that room. I'll try. Her face filled with happiness. Tears sprang up, and she reached for him to embrace him. Holding him tight, squeezing and caressing him, it was as if some long-lost lover had returned. He would try. Like the prodigal, he had been in a far country, now he had come to himself and was returning home. He would try. What more could a woman ask? She could live with that, gladly. It had come from the depths of his soul. Not lightly, but with the weightiness of his entire life. He had considered the question, confronted the issue, and declared his decision. Manhood is not magic. It is a building process. No magic wand wave could produce it instantly. It doesn't strike like lightning. It is built, layer upon layer, line upon line, precept upon precept, decision upon decision. The Bible says that everywhere Abraham went, he built his altar and pitched his tents. Today, too many men are building their tents and pitching their altars. They spend too much time on the temporal and not enough on the eternal. Too much time on building personality while merely pitching character. It's a perversion of godly principles. You can pitch personality, but you must build character. One of my heroes of faith, W.T. Gaston, once told me something I have never forgotten and have quoted thousands of times. When the charm wears off, you have nothing but character left. I'm going to repeat that. W.T. Gaston says, When the charm wears off, you have nothing but character left. It is the longing of every woman to have a man with character in the house. It is the need of every child to have a man at the helm. It is the crying need of every church to have real men at work in its ministry. Let me read that again. 
It is the crying need of every church to have real men at work in its ministry. You have derived spirituality from women in the church, but you get strength from the men. I'm sorry, let me read that again. You can derive spirituality from women in the church, but you get strength from men. Same in the home and in a nation. Churches, homes, nations are only as strong as their men. Amen and amen, I will say. That's my comment. It is the command of our Father in heaven to be Christ-like, and Christ himself prayed the Father to give his own spirit to reproduce his life within us. I said it before. I'm saying it again. Manhood and Christ-likeness are synonymous. Man has conquered the mountains, the oceans, and even space. But the greatest achievement of all is when man conquers himself. He who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city, says the Proverbs 16 and 32. Now that's the amplified version. Manhood and Christlikeness are synonymous. Be a man. Live a life of maximized manhood. Amen and amen.